We last ended in James chapter 4 at the end of verse 6. I'm going to come back and start at the beginning of verse 6, not because I'm going to re-explain everything that we ended with last time, but I just want to continue the context. And let's remember, in the beginning of James chapter 4, he's talking about the strife, the conflict, the uh, the um, compromise that happens among God's people. That That's the beginning of James chapter 4. And in response to our sin and trouble and conflict and compromise and all the rest of it, God pours out his grace. Uh, He pours out his grace because he's a loving, gracious God, and he wants us to humble ourselves and to receive his grace. That's why I'm going to start reading here now at verse 6 of James chapter 4. We read this. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, last time we spent a lot of time talking about the wonderful verse, James chapter 4, verse 6, where it says, God gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. By the way, that principle of God resisting the proud, but giving grace to the humble is so important to God that he repeats it three times in the Bible. That's a verse uh, paraphrased from Proverbs, number one. It's also found here in James chapter 4. It's also found in 1 Peter. It's an important principle, and we spent a long time talking about it. But what we really want to focus here is on verse 7, where he follows up with that idea, that command, that exhortation, that invitation to us to submit to God, uh, excuse me, to resist um, to, to stop resisting God, because it says God resists the proud, but give grace to the humble, therefore submit to God. Really, that is the proper response, isn't it? We, we recognize our own sinfulness. We recognize these conflicts that we have both within us and conflicts we have with other believers. We realize that oftentimes it's the result of sin and a fleshly nature within. What's the result of it? What should we do in responses? We should submit to God. That's why he says, look at it there in verse 7, therefore submit to God. Because God offers grace to the humble, there's only one thing for us to do, to submit to him. Submission implies humility. This means that we should order ourselves under God. We need to surrender to him as to a conquering king, and therefore we'll start receiving the benefits of his wonderful reign. Listen, it is amazing that the world does not submit to God. It's amazing that we don't submit to God fully, And before we surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, you could say we didn't submit to God at all. But God wants us to submit to him, and it's amazing that we don't. I think that one of the master strategies of the devil in the last few hundred years has been to promote the idea that God is not the creator. 
whether you want to think that we're created by chance, whether you want to think that we're created by evolution, whether you want to think that it was just some crazy mixture of coincidence that came along. The idea that people now so readily and almost universally reject the idea of God as a creator has put it in people's mind that they don't have to submit to him. I mean, after all, if you really believed that God was your creator, that there was an almighty in heaven who was the reason why you exist, he created you, you would understand that you had some obligation to submit to him, to honor him. But man doesn't like that idea. We don't like the idea of submitting to God. So what do we do? We put God out of our mind. And one of the ways we do it is by believing that things can exist without having a creator, that there can be a creation without a creator. So don't miss it. We should submit to God because he created us. We should submit to God because he is a loving, helpful father. You know, it can be an honorable thing to rebel against a tyrant, to rebel against oppression, to rebel against injustice. That is an honorable thing. But think of a child who grows up in a home and there is a loving, good, um, wonderful, providing, caring father to rebel against that father, to refuse to submit to that father. That's bad. That's terrible. No, we should submit to God because he created us. We should submit to God because his rule is good for us. I'll tell you another reason why we should submit to God. We should submit to God because it's crazy to resist him. What do we benefit when we resist God? There was an old Broadway play, if I think I have this right in my mind. And I don't know anything about the play, but I'll just tell you, I like the title of the play. The title of the play was this. Your arms are too short to box with God. Isn't that a tremendous idea? That, you know, whatever uh, arms we have, whatever reach we have, it is not enough for us to think that we can really actually resist God or at least resist him successfully. God has a greater reach. Resistance against God is futile. So submit to him. I'll tell you another reason why you need to submit to God. Because submission to God is absolutely essential to salvation. You can't be rescued from sin and shame and the powers of darkness and everything that we deserve from the righteousness of a holy God who sees us as sinners. We cannot be rescued from that without surrendering to God. And finally, we should submit to God because it is the only way to have peace with God. Now, I know. I know that there is something within us as human beings that says, in the words of an old poet, I'll be the captain of my fate. I'll be the master of my soul. I don't want to submit to anyone. I don't want to submit to anything. Let me tell you something. You are submitting right now. You're either submitting to God or you're submitting to the devil but you are submitting to someone. You are submitting to some higher principle. And if you think, no, I submit to no one but myself, let me tell you something, without knowing it, you're really submitting to the devil. Since you are submitting to something, to someone, to some principle, since you are already submitting, are submitting, I should say, why don't you submit to the good God who loves you? 
You, you are going to have a master. It's either going to be God or the devil. No man is without a master. No woman, for that matter. We should submit to God and wisely and joyfully choose Him as our master. I love that opening phrase of verse 7, therefore submit to God, but that's not where verse 7 ends. Look at how he continues, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What a beautiful correlation. We submit to God, but we resist the devil. We push away the devil. We stand against him. You see, solving the problems of strife, of compromise, of carnality, it begins with submitting to God. That's where you got to start. But there's also an aspect in there when we must resist the devil. This means to stand against the devil's deceptions. This means to stand against the devil's efforts to intimidate. This means to stand against the devil and every one of his agents when they speak to us lies, when they scream those lies at us, even if they do it persistently. And as we resist the devil, it is promised that he will flee from you. And I think it's interesting here that James does not recommend to us that demons should be cast out of believers. I do not believe, and I believe that the Bible does not teach, that Christians can be demon-possessed. I think that there's something different in the life of a believer. That means they cannot be demon-possessed. And what I mean by possessed is this, unable to do what James says here. We can resist the devil and he will flee from us. You see, James challenges us to deal with Satan as a conquered foe who can be and must be personally resisted. You see, when he says resist the devil and he'll flee from you, the one thing that implies is, first of all, this resistance is necessary. <laughs> we need to resist the devil. I think we as believers often underappreciate the ways and the strength and the persistence of the devil's attack against us. No, when it says resist the devil and he will flee, it first of all means it's necessary, but it also means it's possible. And if a person is demon-possessed, there's a sense in which they cannot deliver themselves. They must have an outside agency come and do it. Now, let me say this. It's not wrong to ask other believers to come alongside with you and in prayer and in counseling and in bold confrontation and prayer to help you resist the devil and see him flee from you. If you feel like you're having a hard time resisting the devil and his influences, then why don't you call another brother or sister along and say, I feel like you need to stand beside me and help me resist the devil. No, there's nothing wrong with that. But please understand what they're doing is they're helping the believer to do something that they have the capability to do. That is, resist the devil, to stand against the devil, to resist him. Now, Satan can be set running by the lowliest believer who comes in the authority of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So we resist the devil. We confront him, not fighting for victory, but even more so, think in these terms, we fight from a place of victory. Jesus Christ has won the victory on the cross, and now 
working in cooperation with him, working at the instigation and the inspiration of what he does in our life, we say we want to see that victory extended to every part of our life and our experience. I like what Matthew Poole, another one of these old Puritan commentators, said on this point. He said this, quote, And he will flee from you as to that particular assault in which you resist him. And though he return again and tempt you again, yet you still resisting, he will still be overcome. You are never conquered so long as you do not consent. Understand this, and I like the point that Matthew Poole made in this. What Matthew Poole is trying to establish for us is this simple principle. Don't think that you can like resist the devil and he'll flee for you forever. Like it's a once and for all thing. Okay, I've done it. He's gone. That's all there is to it. No, no. We resist the devil and he'll flee. He'll back off, but we got to resist him again and again and again. This is how it is on this side of eternity. I like something that I found in William Barclay's commentary on the book of James. He was quoting an ancient Christian writer named Hermas who wrote this. He said this, The devil can wrestle against the Christian, but he cannot pin him. You know that idea of wrestling where you wrestle and then the, the, the match is won when one wrestler pins the other. Listen, because of who we are in Jesus Christ, the Christian cannot be pinned by the devil, but he can wrestle and he can even put some pain on us but he cannot defeat us in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I think sometimes we don't think enough about the spiritual warfare that happens, that we think that everything has to do with the world out there or everything has to do with my own flesh. But please remember, there's three classic enemies to the Christian life. The world, which James spoke about previously in this chapter, the flesh, which is dealt with throughout this chapter, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Maybe there is a persistent and stubborn spiritual challenge in your life that has more of a demonic influence than you think. Ask God for wisdom. Engage in the battle. Battle from victory. The victory Jesus won on the cross. But let this principle stand firm in your mind. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And as I said before, if you need to call another brother or sister around you to, to, to help you resist and to resist right along with you, then you go ahead and do it. But see the victory won in Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't end with that. Let me read again back from the beginning of verse 7. He says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now verse 8, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I love that verse. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is both an invitation inviting us to draw near to God, but it is also a promise. It invites us to draw near, and it promises when we do that, God will draw near to us. Listen. It does no good to submit to God's authority. It does no good to resist the devil's attack if we then fail to draw near to God. That's the whole purpose. The, the, the purpose isn't to submit to God just for the sake of submitting to God. 
The purpose isn't to resist the devil just for the purpose of resisting the devil. No, the real result of this is that we can draw near to God. And as we draw near to God, he has promised that he will draw near to us. Now, what does it mean to draw near to God? Well, I like it something that Charles Spurgeon said uh, in a sermon that he preached on this text. He, he's considered a few ways in which we can draw near to God. We can draw near to God in worship, praise, and prayer. That's drawing near to God. We can draw near to God by asking counsel of him, seeking him. God, I seek you. What's your guidance for my life? That's a way to draw near to God. We can draw near to God in simply enjoying communion, that is fellowship, a shared life, where God becomes part of everything that we do in the day. If you're going to go to the market and buy some milk, you, you sense God is going with me to the market to buy some milk. If you go to your job and work and put it, God is with you at your job. You're, you're taking care of the kids at the home and wiping their noses and cleaning up after them. God is there with you in the kitchen and in the home. But then it also means just to draw near in the general course and tenor of your life. God wants us to draw near to him. You know, in one sense, this illustrates the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. In the old covenant, God told Moses and he told Israel, don't come closer. When God encountered Moses at the burning bush. God told Moses, don't come closer. When God revealed himself to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, God told Israel, don't come closer. But under the new covenant, God says to us, he says to us sinners, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. That's what God says. You see, now the ground, the distance between the sinner and God has been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, and we can come close to God on the basis of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And by the way, this text, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, also speaks to us in a powerful way of what God wants to accomplish in our life. In other words, look at that again, verse 8. It doesn't say, or verse 7 rather, it doesn't say, uh, excuse me, verse 8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. It doesn't say, um, draw near to God and he'll save you, even though God does want to save you. It doesn't say, draw near to God and he'll forgive you, even though God wants to forgive you. But what God really wants to do is be near you. He wants to have close relationship, what the Bible calls fellowship, sharing of life, with you as an individual. That's what God wants. He wants fellowship. He wants you. He wants me. He wants everyone who will be called by his name to live close to him. And so friends, this is what God is after. Now, he continues on in verse 8 by saying, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now verse 9, lament and mourn and weep. What's the connection here? He's telling us to uh, submit ourselves to God, to put away pride. He's telling us to resist the devil. He's telling us to draw near to God. Then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. 
I think the point may be this. As we draw near to God, we're going to become convicted of our sin. So what do we do? We lament. We mourn. We weep, as is appropriate, under the conviction of sin. And then we are compelled to find cleansing at the cross. You see, James is speaking to us strongly. When we draw near to God, don't be surprised if some of your sin is exposed. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. God is saying, here's some things that you need to consciously bring under the power of my work on the cross so that we can be even closer. And then I love what he says in verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You see, as we come before God, recognizing that we're sinners, but that we're saved by grace, as we come before the holy God, we will appropriately humble ourselves before him. And you know what happens when any man, when any woman will appropriately humble themselves before God? Then he will lift them up. Why? Go back to verse 6. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And God, the, the giving his grace, that unmerited favor of God, this will always lift us up. You see, this is a beautiful thing that God does in our life. Encouraging us to humility, encouraging us to receive, encouraging us to submit, encouraging us to resist the devil and all his works. When we do that, you know what? We're going to, come back to the beginning of chapter 4. We're going to get along better with each other. That's why he kind of returns to that theme in verse 11. Take a look. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? That's verses 11 and 12 of James chapter 4. He begins in verses 11 and 12 by saying, do not speak evil of one another. You know, when we properly humble ourselves before God, as we were told to do in verse 6, as we were told to do in verse 10, when we properly humble ourselves before God, it'll help in our getting right before other people. You see, if I recognize my place before God with true humility, then I'm not going to walk around thinking I'm better than you. And it'll mean that I don't speak evil of one another. Listen, I think this is something that is all the more necessary in our present day. Uh, I don't think that social media has made us worse people necessarily. But I think that it has shown the ways that we're bad in a very picturesque and powerful way. And social media makes it possible for us to speak evil of one another in ways that we didn't have the capability to do just a few years ago. No, don't speak evil of one another. Why? He who speaks, I'm reading from verse 11, he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. You see, when we judge our brother, we put ourselves in the same place as the law. We are in effect judging the law. 
This is something we have no authority to do. Why? Because there's one lawgiver, God alone. Who are you, James says in verse 12, to judge one another? No, that is God's, God's domain at all. And again, when we understand that, who are you to judge one another? This is an extension of the same humility that James wrote about in the chapter. When we have proper humility before God, it just isn't even within us to judge our brother. So don't miss this. James is not saying that we can't look at another one's life and see where it is in obedience or disobedience to God. This has much the same idea of what Jesus said again on the Sermon on the Mount. We find so many parallels between this letter that James wrote and the Sermon on the Mount. Again, that we should not judge one another in that harsh, unfair, hypocritical way where we judge them by one standard and we judge ourselves by another standard. No, there, there are places where we have to evaluate other people. We have to use discernment, but we can do it with a kind heart, a loving heart, a generous heart. And that's what it means to not judge one another. Now, as we go on to verse 13 and continue on to the end of the chapter, we see how James is really encouraging us to have this humble dependence upon God. Look at verse 13 now. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Again, really continuing along on the theme of humility, how to live with this humble dependence upon God, we do it by not exalting a sense of independence against God. I mean, when you sort of proudly say, as he relates there in verse 13, today or tomorrow we're going to go to such and such, and we're going to buy and sell this. And we, when you make all your plans and don't realize that God not only has the power, but God even has the authority to disrupt our plans and change things at any time. When we fail to realize that, we are not walking in humility before God. No, no, no. James says, don't have that attitude that just says, well, I'm going to do whatever I think best. No, instead have that humble reliance upon God that recognizes that our life, as he says in verse 14, that our life is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. We should remember the fragility of human life. Listen, we live and move and have our being at the permission of God. Now look, it's okay to plan and to do, but don't plan and do apart from reliance upon God. Oh, yeah, you, you make your plans, make your business plans, make your educational plans, make your life plans. God wants us to think for it about the future. It's in God's heart and mind to do it, and we are made in his image. But we do it in a different place from God. We do it in that place of real humility before our creator. And that humility is reflected in verse 15, where it says, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Listen, 
when we start thinking we are so independent of God and do whatever we want to do and God will somehow figure it out along the way, that is a boastful arrogance. That is the essence of sin, a proud independence. And that's why the Apostle Paul knew this principle. In Acts 18.21, he said this, I will return again to you, God willing. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 19, he says, I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 7, he says, I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. The Apostle Paul understood that principle, that it is in him that we live and move and have our being. So we should not think of ourselves as independent from God but dependent upon him in every way. Now, verse 17, with which we conclude the chapter in this particular study, we read here, verse 17, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. What's the good that we know how to do in this chapter? Well, we know it's good to submit to God. We know it's good to resist the devil. We know it's good to lament and mourn over our sin. We know it's good to speak well of one another and not evil of one another. We know it's good to not judge our brothers and sisters, but be kind and generous towards them. We know that it is good to live our lives in dependence upon God, not in independence away from him. We know all these things are good. Brothers and sisters, when we know these things are good and we fail to do them, to him it is sin. James comes back to an idea, a theme that's common throughout the letter. It's not enough just for us to say it. You say it's good to submit to God? Wonderful. Do you do it? You say it's good for you to resist the devil? Great, but do you do it? You say it's good for you to mourn over your sin? Wonderful, but do you do it? I could go on and on. You get the point. Genuine faith is proved by our actions. You might be able to check every box in the good doctrine form. Uh, I give you a test about biblical doctrine. You can pass it with 100% accuracy. But listen, do you live it? Do I live it? To him who knows how to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. I've always found that it's easier to talk about humility than it is to actually live a humble life before God. Listen, God wants us to live and walk in this humility before him, in love and kindness towards others, submitting to God, resisting the devil, and in doing all of those things, we're going to live and walk in his grace. Because, I'm going to come back to the verse we started with, James 4, 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's walk in that humility. It's the good that God has for us. God helping us, we will do it, and we'll avoid that shallow faith, that dead faith of knowing what's right, but failing to actually do it. God help us to do it and to look to Jesus for his cleansing, for his forgiveness every time we fail along the way.
We'll leave it off here at the end of James chapter 4. Next time, we continue picking it up at James chapter 5.